Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. This episode, we celebrate stage management and casting directors. These often unsung players are the hardest working people on the board and are, well, Broadway's backbone. Welcome to episode 87. I welcome Ron Vodica and Paul Davis. So I am very excited. <laughs> right now I am sitting backstage at the Minskoff Theater. And I have two uh, very special guests. I'm here with Ron Vodica, who is the PSM of Lion King. And I'm sitting here with Paul Davis, who is uh, associate at James Caleri Casting. What's really exciting is that I've known both of these gentlemen since, well, we were all kids. Welcome to uh, Broadway's Backbone. How are you guys? Terrific. Good. Thank you Thank for having us. I'll start with Paul. What are some of the big shows that you, or small shows or things that you've worked on as a casting director? I've worked on sort of an eclectic mix, but sort of like the more recognizable ones would be Hedwig, The Visit. Uh, with Cheetah Rivera. We've done uh, a few seasons at Williamstown. Uh, we've cast for The Long Wharf. We do some TV shows, some indie film. I didn't so, know you did all that. You know. Cheers. Isn't that cool? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I even auditioned for it once, and they were so cool. Like, it was a... You never know when you audition for any imagine. casting director, let alone a casting director who's a friend. Your office is really nice and warm, which you don't hear that about a lot of casting directors' offices. So you, th- what you and James have going on there is nice. So. Thank you. Yes. I feel, he won't admit it, but he used to be an actor as well. And so did Erica in our office. So we all know what it's like to be on the other side. And, yeah. and what about you, Ron? You didn't just start as a PSM. I just have to say, I forgot Annie Get Your Gun oh, was well. my first <laughs> casting job as an assistant. Oh. I typed Brad Bradley's name many times. Yes. <laughs> and that opened today, yeah. 21 years ago. Oh, my God. Oh my God. Wow. Yes. Okay. Isn't that crazy? That's a lot. Yes. So I've done a lot else in New York City. I had this job, and then I was on tour a lot before that. Right before this, I was on the Parisbury National, and I was on, I did, I don't know, a bunch of tours. I did Evita, and um, I was out with Tap Dogs for a while. Oh, wow. And I interspersed that with lighting jobs in and around, although I did light an opera at New York City Opera when it was still existed. I was going to ask you both where you're from, but uh, we're all from San Diego, San Diego California. Yes. Paul, how did you get started uh, as a little boy in San Diego? Well, Ron Vodica was my friend from All Saints Episcopal School, and you were like hanging out at Junior Theater doing Charlotte's Web. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember very vividly, like sitting on his porch, and he was showing me like the choreography for like, oh, now look at him now, Zuckerman's famous pig, and you were doing it with your fingers, and I was like, that's cool. And I, I wasn't in Junior Theater, but I started hanging out, and then I made my parents enroll me and did some shows there, and then. I also grew up with front row season tickets to Starlight. I saw a lot of theater there and then ended up working as a dresser for many years and then did three shows one summer and sort of caught the bug early. And I remember seeing West Side Story with you at Starlight and the the Anita was the Cha-Cha de Gregorio from the movie Grease. <laughs> and we were like very starstruck. Yeah. 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 Um, the best dancer at St. Um, Bernadette's. And, yes. and I was very, like, shy about... But I remember Ron, like, marching up to her after the show and, like, saying, you know, hi, great job, nice to meet you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Just bold. That's bold. awesome. At a, at a young age. 
funny. And Ron's sister did the airplane signals oh, at, yeah. at Starlight. Oh, yes. And then from Starlight, you went to... Uh, UC Irvine. And I studied dance. I studied dance. I took a year off to dance in a show at SeaWorld. Work. Was <laughs> it City Lights? It's City Streets. City Streets. I'm still very proud of that. Yeah. <laughs> and good friends with many of those people still. And then James Caleri was my acting teacher at UC Irvine. He was getting his master's right. degree, and he taught the intro acting class for majors and non-majors. And we were pen pals before email. And uh, after college, I got a job on a cruise ship, and we corresponded a lot. And he was living in New York working as a junior agent at Gersh at the time and I was like I'm interested in moving to New York and he in one of his letters back wrote that New York's bark was worse than its bite and that I should come and I had money saved up from the cruise ship and I moved here and lived with Michael Curry and Calvin Kitten and attempt for many years before stumbling into casting before it was sort of like a, a field that people do many unpaid internships in before their first assistant job. So I was really fortunate. I wasn't really trained in casting, but I was enthusiastic about theater and knew theater people and saw a lot of stuff and had good mentors. So, Well, excellent. So what about you, Ron? Were you in Charlotte Swift? Did you dance? I didn't. never danced. <laughs> <laughs> I never tell them I danced. Yeah, when I was like... I have two older siblings, and they, my parents had season tickets to the Globe, and I could never go. I was too young. And then when I was six, they took me to see Godspell at the Carter, and I was, I'd just seen the Ringling Brothers Circus, like, a few weeks before, and I was blown away. I was like, what is this? Like, what are these people? They're singing, and I love it, and, like, there's a band over there, and, like, isn't this cool? And at the end... You know, like, like, well, let's have some wine. And, like, you know, the intermission, and I went to the Jesus. Like, I played Jesus, and I said, I like this so much better than the circus. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, so then, I guess, you know, looking back, that was it. But then, you know, my sister was in junior theater, so I went to junior theater. And then, yeah, I did a handful of shows. You know? But I wasn't really good at it. Like, or, you know how, like, you don't like something if it doesn't come to you easily? Yes. You know what I mean? So it was like that. So the acting didn't, but, the, but being around it mm-hmm. was compelling. Like, I had to be around live performance. So I just, from then on, figured out a way to be around it and to help it. And to, you know what I mean? Yes. So then I did, like, was a, on the crew there. And then I, um, you know, I actually left high school when I was 15. And I started working for Starlight, among other places. And, you know, their training, like, even at Starlight, like, the Union Stagehands, there was a, like, a, you could work as a young person. And there was a ratio. And they were, you know, it was a training program. And they were always like, if you weren't moving something, you didn't have a cue, you were standing there with a flashlight waiting to help people off. Like, it was always like, you know, that you were helping the pro- the production go along. And that's sort of like, I still identify with that, like, and am grateful that I was trained in that way, as opposed to, like, some of these places where, you know, do all my cues now, can I go home? You know, right. like, I always, if you invest in it, then you are in, um, then you get something back from it. And so, um, to help out with the shows. And so, yeah, then I had great mentors that helped me to figure out how to make a living at it. Right. Which I love is like, I've been teaching a lot of master classes in New York recently, but you can always tell that there's the one or two kids who have no interest in singing and dancing, but they love theater. But if you do a school group to New York City, they, they offer one mute singing and dancing class. So of course they're going to come. And I realized, I was like, those one or two kids are just as important as the singing and dancing kids. But there isn't a class for how do you do a lighting designer, how do you do a casting director, especially when you're in a group of 14 years old. Yeah. And so that's why I wanted to do this podcast, because one, I know you guys, but... It's there's so much more to the backbone of Broadway than just the ensemble. I mean, there, you have the crew, and then 
the casting starts months and months and months before we even think about the theater. It's, it's pretty awesome. One thing I want to talk about is the theater that we all kind of met at was uh, Starlight, which it's so sad that it's empty, abandoned yeah. amphitheater right. in San Diego. Needs growing out of it. Yes. Yeah. With so much of this business is hands-on training. I got more from working at Starlight than my from college or you just get thrown into it. It is a hands-on type of job. You can go get a degree in it. But you both mentioned mentors. How did you learn your craft without necessarily having to go to a school or a university to get a certificate? When you're sort of doing it because it's fun, but then you have the good fortune of we worked with people who had really good work ethic. And so that weird combination of like we both did the boyfriend that summer, right, with Dan Regas. Yeah. Like you know, like they ran those rehearsals. It was just so precise and mapped out, and it was taken. Everything was taken so seriously in terms of how you approached it. So I don't, I don't really know, except for the fact that you just sort of got exposed to people. Like you know, I was a dresser at Starlight, and and you were there with your with your safety pins, and I I froze the first time, and Brad split his pants in the Shizuki, <laughs> <laughs> and um and he. <laughs> It's like my first crisis. I love everything about that story. Um, and, uh, and he came running off like mid-number, and he's like, my pants split. And I was like fumbling with the, with the safety pins, and Devin Yates grabbed them from me and like and uh, did it up. But it was sort of like, just like exposure and collaboration. And I realized like, you know, people that I knew and I watched just as a fan or backstage in the wings then were people that I knew because they had come to New York and started careers as performers. And, and so I could actually participate in the conversation on on a casting level because I knew people that I could suggest for things or inquire about or... And did you move to New York to be a performer? Ish. I mean, I think sort of like I was never really good at it. Like, I, I loved it. But, I, you know, as a young gay guy, I grew up sort of thinking that I had two options. I could be a dancer or a hairdresser. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, I was, like, surprised there are other jobs in the world. You could run for president. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Different world. Um, yeah. And so, like Ron, I feel like I just wanted to be around people who do this. And I figured out a, a really nice way to do it. There's something, you know, like I, I love casting for TV. So much of it is now driven from self-tape. And we, even for like small roles, we love to get people in the room because I just think the experience is different. And if you, you come from a theater background, ultimately your joy is like connecting with other people as opposed to watching something on your laptop screen. Yeah. I know they always say to be work backstage you have to just be born into the right family because it goes generation to mm. generation. It's true but it's also a big joke. But I remember watching people like Jeff McCambridge as gruff and scary as I thought he was. He was teaching the crew and teaching even the cast like this is what professional theater. Totally. Would you agree that like he was one of the be- that was the beginning of you your mentoring mentorship of knowing where you were going to become? Yeah, I mean he's definitely on the short list. Yes. You know, of people who you know, he took an interest in me uh, in all kinds of ways and <laughs> 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 No, really cheesy. Yeah, he he was patient with me and explained to me not just like the craft, right? Or like how to be, a, what it meant to like, you know, to learn to build something or to put something together that was a rented set or to how to make a rented set that wasn't built for, that was built for a system, a fly system that in mm. a system that only had travelers. He took the time to explain oh, all that wow. to me, but also he took the time to explain to me what it meant to be in a union and part of a collective bargaining agreement and all of those things. He and Eric Keel, who's the electrician, mm. and are the two who I really felt like, they saw it as part of their job, was to train us. It wasn't just, like, cheap labor. 
It was right. that mm. they saw that that we might be in their organization in Local 122 mm. as uh, uh, moving forward, so it was worth investing in us to make the organization so that it wasn't like a bunch of day laborers. It was people who cared about the theater, cared about the craft, and were invested in it, so they were investing in the young people like that. But absolutely. And so what was your path to New York City? Because you know, for me, I, I don't know, I can't speak for you, but for me, New York City, like, access was everything. Like, not, like, an imagining access. So, like... I didn't have that. I didn't know how to do that, or I didn't go to college. I just worked, and so I was a freelance lighting designer, basically. And I was a kind of a lighting designer who could like maybe pay my own show. I was like an electrician designer, and then I started working for San Diego Opera as like a manager for mm. their ensemble uh, show that went to like we went to two schools a day with a professional young professional singers and put up these shows. And so that experience, and the guy who was the director of production for the company, was a. Broadway, an equity stage manager, a Broadway stage manager, and a lighting designer, and both those things. And he took an interest in me and made me the assistant lighting designer for the opera company. And he hired much fancier designers than I'd ever gotten to be around. And then I became his assistant as a lighting designer. And then when he took me out on the road as my first stage manager job. Um, with Robert Goulet and Man of La Mancha. Oh, wow. So he's like, yeah, if you can assist, you can assist. If you can assist me as a lighting you assist me as a stage manager. You know, here we go. So, and then he gave me New York access. So all okay. of a sudden I knew what a general manager was and what all these people were. And so that was, it was really, without him, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. Tr- truthfully. Well, that's what's amazing is that there is a whole part of the business that even if you go to college that you just, you just won't ever learn. And he was key to that. Like his whole yeah. thing was... You know, and I felt in my younger years, because I had him, I felt ahead of those who would like go to grad school to be a lighting designer. Yeah. Because he was like, you know, he taught me all these things about, the, you know, I remember him telling me like, you know, we were doing, it was my first production show and I was an assistant lighting designer, but it was, you know, a production contract. And he was like, what are you doing with that? your check? I was like, I'm mailing it to my bank. He's like, no, no, make that for cash at their bank. He's like, because tomorrow there could be a closing notice on that door and cash doesn't bounce. You know what I mean? Oh wow! Like and he was and he wow. and he like back. You know that was really a thing. You know? Yeah. And so right. he always it was always about the business. And he said to me like, if you want to do this, take all of the skills that you have, things you can do. Can you draw? Can you paint? Can you do lighting? Can you be a stage manager? And figure out a way to cobble together a career in the business. Like, take all of your skills and figure if that's if it's that important to you. Mm. Wow. Am I uh, right in remembering? Did you? design like dance concerts at SCPA that's yeah. what I thought sometimes yeah yeah that yeah. was my high school like yeah. that's where I remember because I yeah. was like I know you didn't go to my high school but I know you were no, there no I did I did um, you did but then I left oh okay. I left I, in my junior year that's so. what I thought but then and I, I remember came back you, and lit dance concerts I was like I always remember <laughs> you being light at all my dance exactly. concerts lighting them and so yes okay. a girl's gotta eat yes yeah. no I, I remember I, I remember that but I remember you at both places yeah. you know what I mean so I was at JT but I only I only did one show at JT what so, show? Uh, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. Wait. Yeah, you. I was in that. Yes. With, with Angie de los Reyes. And I was on crew. I yeah, did the snow. Crew. Oh, you we were? We all, look at that. I, well, I was Together. elf number two. Uh, yes. And uh, Mindy was my the... Linda elf was the, uh, the, the witch. Yeah. She was the mean witch. And um, Grease was like the big kid show. And That's I remember I saw, I went to go see it one night, and <laughs> someone was like butting with the snow <gasps> during Grease, and I was really angry. How dare. Because I had like put signs up by it, and I was like, don't do not touch. Yeah. There was snow. You're not wrong. Yeah. Grease. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's amazing, like, how fortunate, I mean, we were, one, that we were in a big city, but also that we had, as kids, we were able to find out 
what we wanted to do at, at, at such an early age. What do you think, like, the, the, the difference, the biggest difference besides, I mean, you mentioned self-tapes. I mean, from the, the theater that world we grew up with and now, it's vastly different. But do you think, like, the education and the, the mentoring is still there? Or do you think people, like, oh, I know it, I'll watch it on YouTube, or everything's just tracked? You, I mean, what's the biggest difference that you've seen in the business I, mean, I think it's interesting in terms of access. Like for performers, my partner's niece is she has the drama bug. I just played Shelby in her high school production of Steel Magnolias, Whoa. and she was really great. <laughs> Shout out to Madison. But she came to New York, and she sort of like knew more theater people than I did because she's like on Playbill and YouTube and mm. Broadway World and reading all this stuff on the internet in a way that like we couldn't seek out stuff in that way mm. and so I think that's sort of incredible in terms of how if you're sort of like in a small town and you're you don't have like season tickets to whatever touring companies come in you know there's a way you can sort of like pursue what's giving you joy mm. so that's that's interesting to me about yeah, no it's very true yeah you can watch full shows I mean I have a friend that watches he's watched every version of the Dear Evan Hansen of each cast. I was yeah, like, yeah. I was like, we just have to listen to that soundtrack over and over yeah. again. And like I was on my album. <laughs> yeah, my, exactly. my, my <laughs> totally. parents had like Sunday Times subscription. And yeah. so like I would look at the art section in the Sunday Times like just to sort of, it was so, so fascinating and foreign to me. You know, or like occasionally you would see like the, on the local, local TV, like the really short like, ad for the tour of Evita that was coming through, you know, like, yeah. like, like some really low budget ad hawking, uh, I hate to, I, I just feel like I dissed touring producers, but you know, oh, like no. the ad quality of a musical theater tour then, in the different. 80s. Yeah, yeah, it's different. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's not great. So it, was, it felt like really weird and remote. Far and, away. Yeah. Like I had no idea how to access it. So I, yeah, I don't know what's different. We try and do here like a, offer like a PA in the summer. Mm. Um, positioned and we try and pick it like Disney Theatrical does a internship that's like you know sort of the finest of like Yale and you know what I mean and uh, oh, yeah. Harvard and those kind of they're all like they've got it together and they work at the office and they do I don't know how long the internship is and they do all kinds of amazing things but we try and pick somebody like either who's like lives grew up in Queens or is like you know from a school in Arkansas and give them like they have to get themselves here but then they do four weeks 20 hours a week and it's paid and then um and we just kind of show them around the building, basically. They do, they visit with the automation operator, whatever, just another way to yeah. give back and do access and get create access. And it's been helpful to people. People have got careers, you know, mm. and they used it on their resume. You know, now that I'm a band of a certain age, people do ask, like, they want to be mentored. You know, oh, I mean? yeah. they're looking for it, which is interesting and like you know you feel also in this responsibility yeah well like on that i'm meeting a young person tomorrow who's interested in casting and has done some freelance casting work and i'm like i don't know that i have any insights because i feel like i sort of accidentally lucked out and fell into a field but then if you think about it it's just like it, it's totally cliche but you know if you're like focusing on what's bringing you joy th i think it's gonna provide opportunity sometimes it's like Unpaid, you know, like one of my proudest accomplishments in casting. I won't mention it, but I didn't get paid a, a dime for it. But it was like really enriching. And I have to say, going back to even like you know me leaving high school and then working for minimum wage, like that that assumes a kind of privilege, right? Like that I was able to work for nothing yeah, or totally. next to nothing because I had a family that could 
support that. And, you know, I left high school and succeeded the way probably only a white male could. You know what I mean? Right. Like, in terms of the opportunities that were presented to me and the privilege that I had. So I, I think that's worth saying. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, it's all well and good to say, you know, volunteer, but lots of people can't, you know. Yeah. yeah. No, well, it's, it's heartbreaking. Like, you know, my colleague was doing a callback for a regional show today, and she was at the session. An agent called and said, you know, I know we confirmed our client for the callback, but he's talked to his wife. He'd have to give up his survival job. He'd lose his health insurance he can't go do this and you realize you know it is because so much theater is so low pay it's not a living wage and sometimes I think the expectation sometimes people forget that that you're in New York City trying to pay rent and you know like there are people who can their dance card can be full with like prestigious off-Broadway shows all year and they're yeah. still working. Their they're still working their survival yeah. job. Because that's it's a production contract. I don't think people realize that that it's all the other shows in New York. Only Broadway production contracts pay well. Occasionally, an off-Broadway contract will pay well for off-Broadway, but it's still not well. Yeah, you know, in New um, York City. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's not, um, it's not permanent. Yeah, totally. You know, yeah. it's it's temporary work for not a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's interesting that you talked about white privilege because it's something that we've all had, and that there's even lately I realized I have had it more than I've ever realized. But two of the big changes in our in our industry has been the Me Too movement and racial casting and diversity, and these are incredible initiatives. Sad that they came about for negative reasons, but I know in the casting world it's been uh, very different. And working on Lion King, it's all, it's always been diverse. How have you like had to manage the, around these two big issues and change and do it kind of correctly? Especially because it's also weird because we think we're doing it well, but still we're 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 doing it through. You're learning a, a male white privilege through the lens of that. Yeah. yeah sure. So, so I also like I'm an adjunct professor at multiple institutions, and for the new school, I did an EDI training over the weekend, and What's that? Um, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Okay. And the woman who ran it, who runs the BFA theater program, was it, it was talking about sort of the culture uh, in classrooms and rehearsal rooms. And she was talking about, you know, we're old enough to have participated in the business in a way that at times we've been complicit in structures that are not right or ideal. And she, she was bringing up, for instance, I guess back in the day, like at Carnegie Mellon, they would lock the door at nine in the morning and students literally didn't have an exit or you would get a note saying lose 10 pounds dye your hair blonde and that was like very commonplace mm-hmm. in casting too you know you would just people i know people who've gained weight lost weight because they've been sort of promised roles and i've certainly worked for directors who either have explicitly said i wouldn't want to fuck somebody so mm-hmm. can we not cast her <laughs> <laughs> and and said this in front of a reader who was just out of school and it was her first experience in a room with an artistic director and who's no longer in <laughs> in this position of power. But you know, like it, it's weird to have been in rooms like that and to be good at your job and so you know what kind of actor someone responded to and now there certainly has been a really refreshing pendulum swing. Yeah. But you know, each each room and each is different and each team is different and and uh, you sort of intuit and diplomat by nature so I, I I try and I don't know you can like unilaterally repair something in one foul swoop and also there's the dynamic of you know I, I'm 
a small, I mean, a three-person business partnership, and I need jobs, and sometimes you, you suck it up and do the job, and and shake it off at the end of the day. It's weird. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's complicated. I've welcomed the most of the what's come my way from that uh, movement. I guess I've been lucky to be in this job for a long time, and I have, and the producers are great. So. It gives me a platform, has always given me a platform from which I feel safe to advocate mm. on behalf of workers generally and have enjoyed that part of my job. And so to see more people empowered to speak up is great. You know what I mean? So, um, But it has taught me a lot, just the way, you know, the language I use in the building, and especially from my position that we're, you know, that I imagined was amusing, you know what I mean, mm, that mm. now I would never engage in that, you know, but it took, you know, the movement helped me to learn that, so that's good, you yeah. know what I mean, and I don't feel like in any way, you know, castrated or censored by it, I don't need it, yeah. you know what I mean, it turns out, of course there's a few, like, you know, you can you can always point to, like, some negative outcomes that the le- movement has led to, you know what I mean, but by and large, I welcome it completely, yeah. you know what I mean, and the younger people sort of naturally embrace it, they don't have to be taught to, right. to feel empowered, Yeah, you know what I mean, that's just like, people should feel empowered, Yeah, you know what I mean, I mean, this show, you said it's diverse, but it's, it's interesting, it's like, it's all the ensemble are black, or almost, you know, African American or African nationals, most of the principals, or half the principals are white and half are not, mm. and that's always how it is, it's not like, it doesn't get cast outside of that typically so it's sort of rigid in its way so is that okay still I don't know you know what I mean Right. I love this conversation like I love casting in terms of diversity I think it's because I I don't even agree with myself sometimes about how I feel about a certain example of it like you know what I mean it's like you know generally I think I don't know what the right word is if you still say colorblind casting for right yeah yeah. Uh, but you know like but would you, you know, I would definitely not be okay with that if it were a traditionally black play, you know? Like, right. like I would not like to see it cast right, with right. white people. Yeah. Why is that? Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that's a really, I love this conversation. Yeah. So anyway. It's interesting because I used to hate the conversation just because I didn't have precise answers. And everyone's going to have different opinions and they're going to change. And sometimes you'll agree with yourself or disagree with yourself. And my takeaway from this four-hour training on Sunday, which I was initially resentful about like <laughs> going to, and ultimately was so grateful, and, and also it was, just felt like a beginning of sorts. But they sort of talked about not needing to have a silver bullet answer, mm-hmm. but, but it's important to stay in the conversation. Totally. And the more people are able to just sort of like converse civilly and share ideas and points of view I I think you know and we've talked about this a little bit outside of here but like there the cancel culture of social media can get super extreme yeah and like I just cast a play that's running at Intar and it's about a gay conversion therapy group and the characters are all men but the artistic team specifically wanted to cast an ensemble of non cisgendered actors so either non binary actors trans actors or or cisgendered women and uh, there was an article written about it and of course like the initial there was there was a negative comment underneath about like once again gay men are getting shafted out of an opportunity oh, yeah. and I'm like well it's a really low pay LOA <laughs> so I, it's not like a financial opportunity but they didn't know the history of the play and the developmental readings and what the director and the writer's experience was having heard the piece 
with a cast of men playing the roles and, and how they felt, you know, they, the playwright articulated much better than I could about sort of like homophobia being very much rooted in misogyny and how like there's, there are sort of like reasons for the casting just decisions that they made. And it's so easy with a click of a button to fire off an emotionally based knee-jerk reaction to something without information. Uh, without information. And that's of course the microcosm of the whole culture, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm yeah. totally guilty of it as well. Like yeah. when Hallmark Channel yanked the same-sex wedding thing, I was oh. like, "Fuck Hallmark Channel." <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and I was like going crazy on that. Yeah. Well, and I think oftentimes with the diversity casting directors get blamed agents might not have submitted it's just so they, everyone wants to place blame when casting directors can only deal with what's in front of them and right. baby steps I think we're making bigger steps now from what I hear I've never worked for Disney that Disney as an umbrella is a great company to work for yeah. I mean I can only speak to Disney theatrical oh okay. uh, yeah yeah I was concerned when they came into the industry right. with beauty that oh my god they're gonna you know they didn't want to be part of the league in the, I don't know if you remember all this, and then they, and it was like, oh, they're not going to use the production agreement. They're going to have twenty shows a week, and then, you know, <laughs> what's it going to be? And then they've become, I think, a leader in terms of, like, of all the producers I've worked for, like, I've never been asked to sort of look the other way while they were doing something, you know, untoward. You know, they always ask how much it costs and often pay more. For, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they ask a lot, yeah, because you know, they they invest intensely in their productions all the time. So everybody's working, but everybody's getting paid. You know, I've even heard conversations like you'd never expect to hear from a produce, producer. Like, you know, I know what we you know contractually have to do, but what would be the right thing to do here? Mm. You know, I've heard them say that, and that's you would think. And our industry is, I have to say, sadly behind in that way. Like, there's yeah. a lot of things that go on in our industry that are like prehistoric, like yeah. the kind of you know, the belittling in front of people and the, all that sort of stuff. That we really have a long way to go. And so, yeah. I've been grateful to work for them for so long. And the example that from the top that they've given allows. You know, me in a building to feel like I can run, you know, a human organization. You know, that's the good. I mean, nice to be proud of. Uh, yeah, yeah, lucky because yeah. oftentimes you feel that it'd be dangerous for you to be advocating on behalf of workers for in your own job. Yeah, and uh, and or you would you feel that you're seeing something that you know you're not sure you know where your loyalty has to lie and you know so. Yeah. I oh. think on the way here, I'm pretty sure that it looks like the new Elsa is a woman of color. Yeah. Yes, sir. So right. I was like, wow. And she looks fantastic in yeah. that wig. I was like, and I don't even know what her ethnic I'm not sure is. What she is. She's just, but it was like, I just know, I was like, she's not white. Yeah, and she beautiful. looks fine. You know? like, <laughs> like, I know, like, little kids, they're like, as long as she can sing it, we yeah. don't care. And that's as long she's the, in the blue dress. Yes, you they're know, okay. and, they, and yeah. she hits that note. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, like, the process of casting a show starts how long and in, in, what all goes into it? Because then it's weird. Like, the day, like, we start or the day Ron starts is your last day, oftentimes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's it's weird. It depends on the show. Like, with Hedwig, our first list and conversation was, like, four years before the the production went into rehearsal. And and then, sort of, like, deal-making and offers happened outside of us through the general manager's office. And then they locked in Neil Patrick Harris. And then we... Then an actual process with an EPA and appointment auditions could could launch and sometimes it's a lot more reg- regimented like you know for a regional theater they've got their season you figure they have out. a theater yeah, they yeah. Have, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah sometimes like a, a Broadway play can be a little bit that thing of like an indie film it's if it's cast contingent like if you lock in the right person then 
It's like on spec so until, yeah, until yeah, the totally. right thing locks in. Totally. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but of course yeah. that makes sense. Um, and it's interesting because I think, like, you know, talking about structures that are in place that are, that are imperfect, like an EPA structure, I know actors will grumble a lot about, like, things being pre-cast. And it's, it's sometimes, yes, like, you, you've had conversations far in advance of the EPA, and, and also this is the intersection of art and commerce. And so people are figuring out how to secure theater and sell tickets and uh, and make the show financially viable. My only thing is that I celebrate when someone books something from an EPA, which I think happens much more with musicals mm. because like, you can be an unrepresented singer-dancer and just nail it and book it. And then, th- then philosophically, I think there is something about just like sowing the seeds, getting practice, getting face time that, you know, it's that cliche of auditioning for the next audition. And being in an office that gets to dabble in theater, film, and television, sometimes you meet someone at EPA and you can bring them in for a co-star for the TV show that you're working on. And things can cross-pollinate. So it's not always about the notice for that one show. Mm. So, Ron, what has your history been with Lion King? Because you didn't just start off as the PSN. Because like, I know just in your career, you've done probably almost every position in, on the crew. Were you a dresser? <laughs> I've never worked in wardrobe, really, except, you know, tangentially. As a stage manager, you know, you're everything, right? <laughs> I've done the laundry. So with Lion King, I was, I, I mean, I came in as a second ASM. I was on the road with Hairspray, and my friend was the first stage manager, and they had a position open, and I did a phone interview, and it was, I was on the road, and I took this phone interview from a PSM that I didn't know at the time, and, you know, it was a perfectly good talk. And I was like, I'm happy to fly in. Like, I'll fly in to meet you. You know, it was important, you know. And she's like, no, no, no I'm good. And I was like, oh, I totally didn't get this job. Like, mm-hmm. whatever, there's somebody else. And then, like, the next thing you know, she was like, can you, yeah, we're, we want to hire you. You know, she'd asked around about me. Right. I came in, and that was 15 years ago. So um, so then I was the first. I became the, the first, and then I um, took the PSM job. And, you know, for me, you know, a lot of the people who left the PSM job left to go do, like, a new show as a PSM. Like, that was something on the, that they... That they had ambition for. I because I never really started as a stage manager. I like it, but I like this more than I like the idea of doing another show. Like I love this community. This show has just taught me a bunch about people who are different than me. Mm. I've been super grateful for that. I don't. I don't. I mean, I would do anything I needed to do to continue to work in the theater, but I, I don't really want to PSM another show. That's not like something I have ambition for. I want to keep doing this show and then maybe find other opportunities after that to do different things. But it's never dull here. Like, it's constant. <laughs> I mean, it really isn't. It's constantly busy and constantly challenging. They change the show. They, you know, we have challenges that I never th- imagined I would have on a Broadway show, like, because it's still running. Things that you would normally do when the show closes, like, replace all the seats in the house, mm. you know, when you have to do that between Sunday and Tuesday. And oh, wow. Replace all the carpeting. Replace the carpeting in the pit. You know, replace all the light boards and all the sound consoles, like, all while the show runs. So those have been projects like, you know, then we moved the show from the New Amsterdam to, to the Minskoff 12 years ago. So it's never stopped being a challenge, and it's always busy. So rather than it ever feeling boring, it never ends. Like, the gratitude, you're grateful for it, but it's six days a week for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, don't, I think that's one thing that I think young performers don't realize is that <laughs> it's not just the shows. I mean, you have understudy rehearsals, you have put-ins, you have so much, there's so much more that goes into your days and then that's what the performing side I mean, the crew, I mean, you guys are, you guys might as well just have sleeping bags here sometimes. <laughs> Some of them, yeah, I mean I mean, the state, the, I'm not going to lie, I mean, the actors are here all the time too, especially the swings, you know, Oh yeah. there's a lot, the show is injurious um, because of how it's built and the puppets and the, 
and the dancing is, you know, like concert dance on a Broadway schedule, and people get injured, and we're constantly putting new people in. Plus, we've got kids, so every six months we're putting new kids in. So mm. we're in rehearsal all the time. So, I mean, this show is, it's, she's busy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Paul, what's one of the biggest mistakes actors make when they come in the room in general? And then also, I think I know me personally, but also a lot of, act, a lot of theater actors are either told they're not they can't do TV. They're told that they're too big. There's a, a fear base there. Uh-huh. So, like, one, what is the biggest mistake actors make? But two, like, what is the biggest mistake theater actors make when they're auditioning for film or TV? I feel like the psychology of, like, actors thinking that, like, casting person doesn't like them because they're not getting auditions or bookings from a casting office. And it's the, you know, the statistic is true that there are more actors than there are available roles. And years ago, James and I ran into an actor that we had cast in a show and he really affable, sweet guy. And he sort of like was like, what's up? You never call me in anymore. And, and it was sort of like, well, what we, what they'd written for what we were casting just wasn't like suitable for him. Mm. It didn't mean that we liked him any less. So for me, it's sort of, and I, and this is why I could never be an actor because I'm so invested and people wanted to to like me but you know the sort of like no there's no shame if you're running into somebody and you haven't seen them in an audition or they didn't book something because you know like I'm old enough now and again you're gonna open 21 years ago so I don't always remember who booked the job I just remember who I liked seeing in auditions and that informs who I see in further auditions and I love casting TV in New York because I theater actors are my first and favorite kind of actor um, and I think they can do it all. We broke our rule. We don't let interns audition for our stuff, and then we like let them sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever interns booked a, a co-star role on our TV show, and and a veteran New York stage actress was a recurring guest star on it. And and our intern got really nervous when it was time for her like close-up coverage. And on the break, she she confided in this actor, this veteran actress. She said, "I'm nervous." It's my first time on set. Any advice? And she was like, oh, honey, you're getting your cherry popped. (laughs) And then she was like, just talk softer. (laughs) Yeah. And like, you know, depending on... And sometimes for me, like a New York... A theater actor for comedy, like a musical theater actor is like a comedic genius. You know, so that's a, a wealth of resources available to your disposal. And also, casting makes sense to me here because you see people in plays you get FaceTime with actors and then you can call them in for things. Whereas, like, if I did what I did in L.A., you'd be in, like, a windowless room putting people on tape all day for on-camera stuff. And and there's not a huge theater culture in Los Angeles, so I don't think it's about, like, going out and seeing people in fringe festivals or Mm -hmm. one-act festivals. You go to showcases? Yeah, I go to fewer and fewer the older I get. Ah, (laughs) I'll cut that part. You know, (laughs) because I I think it's true, and I think it also speaks to, you know, sometimes, for instance, we've gotten complaints when there's, like, an assistant behind the table at the open call, and that 25-year-old assistant is infinitely more hungry Mm. than I am to sort of get to know the culture in the community whereas I'm sort of like interested in walking my dog and and getting to bed at a reasonable hour yeah. you know not that I don't love it but you know like it's it's Your a different shift. sort of energy yeah. when you hit middle age yes so Ron the, I think the, the PSM job is uh, an interesting position because you're an ally to the actors you're like a leader when it comes to the crew but you're also a big liaison between the creative team and the producers 
So, like, that's a like a tightrope that you have to walk, and you, it's also you have to be a, a politician. And both of you are like in these power positions. How do you handle the fact that like you have to do the right thing for three different departments that are at times just pulling you in different ways? Mm. For me, I become like emotionally invested in everybody, you know, mm -hmm. which other people do it very well without doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not, it's just the way that I do it. And sometimes to a fault, like sometimes I get too invested and my feelings get too wrapped up in it. So anyway, I care about everybody, including like everybody in the build. It's also like the landlord, you know, we're the Needlelanders. And so like people come to me that aren't even Disney employees when they have an issue. Yeah. Because they feel like they can get a fair hearing, you know. Mm -hmm. And I feel proud of that. But at the same time, it's a lot of input. And um, the best thing I can say is, in the, in a, and I haven't always been successful, and sometimes more successful than others, is to be honest all the time. Like, mm -hmm. is to try and, and figure out a way to, you know, listen to what people have to say, but not, you know, tell them what they want to hear or, you know, tell them just to be as honest as you possibly can, even when it's difficult. And, you know, the older I get, the more I'm interested in keeping everything in the open. Like, mm -hmm. let's just have this conversation mm -hmm. in the open. Yeah. Whereas before I might have tried to, like, get involved and solve it on my own and play the messenger, you know, the, I, I definitely traded in that for, a, you know, at some point, but I find it's much easier to try and facilitate productive conversation amongst the, the stakeholders and whatever the conversation is, you know, in the open and not try and keep anything secret, you know. I mean, there's there's information that's privileged right. that I'm not allowed to share with one group or the other. Again, I've been lucky to have producers that respect that, that I'm able to have conversations that they don't feel threatened that I'm having, at least that I know of. They don't let me know. Right. They feel that I'm trying to, that my advocacy for the actors is making them, you know, is, is problematic for them, you know. Did I answer the question? Yes. It okay. sounds, no, that sounds like a good leader. That's what you want as a, anyone to lead the, your shit. I love a stage manager. I just love <laughs> No, they, like, sometimes I'm like, wow, they have to deal with everyone's problems, everyone's everything. It's a lot. I was in between jobs one year because I had indignantly quit my job at Focus Features, and <laughs> <laughs> which I'm glad I did. But anyway, <laughs> I got a job assisting Antonio Banderas, who was in Nine, and I also assisted wow. Melanie Griffith, who was doing Chicago at the time, and Artie Gaffin was wow. the stage manager oh, of Nine. Bless him. I bless him. He was yes. a dear man. And I, you know, I sort of didn't know what to do because my job, like I bought groceries for their dressing rooms and was like around in case they needed anything, but I didn't have a lot to do. And I just sort of found sanctuary in Artie's office with his staff. And he was so generous and nice. But it would talk about like watching a stage manager. There were many stars in that show. It was super fancy, you know, big. Broadway hit and it was just it was just so amazing watching him navigate that and and setting the tone of the, of that production backstage based on his good nature I wish I could like steal that sort of poise and diplomacy which sometimes I, I get a little emotional and like my frustration is when I don't know something I get a little explosive Yes. I'm working it out in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> when people ask uh, one reason why I do this podcast is because I want the ensemble to get the credit they deserve and the people behind the scenes to get the credit deserved. And I hate it when, like, you look up a show and there's the ensemble isn't listed. Mm. So, Paul, didn't you recently write to a newspaper about 
a show that they complimented the casting but yet didn't yeah, give credit so, to the casting. So it's like this <laughs> ongoing <laughs> discussion apparently with the Casting Society of America and long before I was a member there have been conversations with the New York Times but apparently they have like a firm stance that they don't list the casting office and they will list like the dialect coach and Fight Captain. the child wrangler <laughs> and, and uh, valuable people yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but uh, like I was reading the review of Emoji Land and she was like the show is successful thanks in part to the like exemplary casting across the board and I was like oh who cast the show and I knew because the New York Times doesn't print the casting director it had like checked the website out to see that it was Bender's office you're sort of like if you're gonna praise the casting but not list it in the credits and uh, I work out at MFF with a woman who works at the Times and I was like hey can, can I send a letter to you and will you forward it and she did and you know I didn't get any response but I sort of said my piece diplomatically and you know looked at the core principles of the times and they're like curiosity and I was like hmm wouldn't you be curious <laughs> if yeah. the critic said like it's well cast who cast yeah. it and and it's an interesting role of casting directors because I think casting directors like to think of themselves as kind of part of the design team because you're having those conversations with the director like Walter Bobby did School for Lies that David Ives played down at Classic Stage Company we cast it for him and I remember him vividly talking about every person needing to be like a, a vivid color, uh, like a piece of confetti, but not primary colored, <laughs> you know, in terms of like their energy and how they, and, and just like you're listening to that and trying to figure out what that translates into in terms of who the actors are that you populate the world with. And, you know, nobody sort of unilaterally casts the show. It's like a group of people deciding. And as a casting director, you certainly have influence and some power, but I, it doesn't feel like a powerful position so much as like a collaborative one. I love that you like stood up for not only just yourself and James, but just like the casting directors as a whole. I, I, I think, think New York's sort of amazing about the casting community is, is pretty tight and supportive of each other. And so, you know, like I sent my letter to James and he sent it to Tara Rubin and she sent it to Bernie Telsey. And <laughs> I, I was like, that's nice. You know, <laughs> No, it um, is. And, but, you know, like, it's one of many letters. But if anyone wants to, like, start... I don't tweet. Otherwise, I would have tweeted. But <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how to do that. Yes. So, Ron, this is, a, like, a, probably a, a bigger question, but it's a question that a lot of people ask. From an actor's point of view, oftentimes we see the stage manager as part of the crew who talks to us. Mm. But you are in... You as a whole are... You guys are in that in equity. Mm. So why is it set up that uh, you guys are in our union and not IATSE? Let me say, first of all, that I, I'm grateful to be part of the, the Actors Union for a variety of reasons. Mm. You know, I, I took the position that, you know, you, can do, you can't do the show without the cast. <laughs> I know that's an uh, out-there position. But, uh, <laughs> but I guess what I'm saying is that oftentimes, and I, I'm a, you know, a, a, a try and support Actors' Equity and try and be an active member as, yeah. much, as, I can, as much as I'm able or, you know, Maybe not as much as I'm able, but as, as much as I'm willing to. I think they're a great union, and I think that people will be like, oh, well, you know, why aren't we as powerful or whatever? And, you know, all of that is because there are, like Paul said, there are less jobs and there are people who want them. Mm -hmm. And so, but in many ways, we have the most power because they can't shut down the show. This is this has become, this, I'm way off, I'm way on a tangent. They can't shut, like, you could shut down the show and train the crew in a day to do it most of the time I'm not, and I'm not diminishing that's not shade mm. but if you shut down the show and you have to go through an entire rehearsal process with 
to, with a new cast. You know what I mean? That's not a day. There's no way to do that. So anyway, but um, I, there's, I'm sure there are historical reasons, like where we come from. Mm. This is the hundredth year. This is the centennial of stage managers and actors' equity, and uh, because it's the they found in the minutes the first time a stage manager was minute, mentioned in an equity meeting was a hundred years ago, and uh, and it was sort of like yeah we agreed that they need to be there all the time. Like you always need a stage manager there. So it, like yes, we deal with technical things, but we're also historically a lot of us. You know, it's about carrying on what the director had in mind. And, you know, that becomes then what the designers have in mind. And so then you have to liaise with the crew. But it, and then there's all kinds of stage managers, stage managers in regional theater. When you're on the road, sometimes it feels like, you know, our breaks really should be like the crew breaks. Like we're doing so much of the load in and mm-hmm. so much of that. But, you know, in regional theater, your breaks, like you're pretty much you're doing what the actors do. You know, you're in rehearsal and then you come in and, you know, you, you take the break when the actors take the break. Anyway. So I don't know. There's there's all different versions of what we are and why we are. I'm happy where we are. You know, um, I think it makes sense, and I think it's a win for actors mm. to have us in the room and part of their union that has the position of uh, authority that we have. So I mean, I think for the actors, they would never want to lose it. I would think, right? Yeah, because it's one of their members, and so hopefully that they're acting like a member, you know, and advocating for the membership as well as, you know, acting on behalf of the production and its and you know, its priorities. Yeah, I mean, I'm comfortable where we are. Yeah. I, I, I feel we belong there and I wouldn't want to be just like in regional theater you'll have like a production manager who doesn't really deal with the actors in the same way. And I like being both. Like mm-hmm. I like I feel that it's makes sense even though sometimes it's a lot. You yeah. Know? But it makes sense to that you're solving the problem with both of those things in mind all the time, you know. Nice. So what is the process, Paul, to be hired to cast a show? Because I know, and also, like, it's, you have disappointments you want to show. I know you worked in SpongeBob initially, but then you were looked over, and you don't think that, like, that happens to people like casting directors. Like, projects are taken away from you as well. Yeah. So how do you how do you pitch yourself? It's different per show. Sometimes it's like you have the relationship with the producer, and they bring you on board. Sometimes it's the director who requests you. Like with SpongeBob, Kyle Jarrow, I had cast some of his first stuff years ago. And back when it was like Untitled, Jarrow Project, mm. Non-Union, we worked on many incarnations of it. It was disappointing not to be able to continue, but we were also proud that we cast Danny and uh, Ethan, the Patrick and the SpongeBob, who were like on Broadway doing it. So we've, we were proud of that, and it was joyful mm. and a little bittersweet. It's a little bit like, you know, circling back to Junior Theater Starlight discussion. It's just about, like, relationships. And my friendship with James, I never in a million years thought we would be in a business partnership together. He was just, like, my best friend and pen pal. Mm. And and it just sort of organically evolved that way. So jobs come to you very strangely and randomly sometimes. And sometimes it's something you expect and sometimes totally unexpected. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Like, you know, are, are there protections, like, because of the <clears throat> union, like, to keep them from, like, having you do something on spec and then take your people and then then not use you? You know what I mean? So, um, we're not, u- uh, for theater, we're not unionized. Yeah. There was a effort and that didn't yeah. succeed, unfortunately. They're not protections, but there are sort of, like, casting society community guidelines. So when SpongeBob was out of town, we had six actors in that production and actually we shared an award with Patrick Goodwin at Telsey mm. for the casting of that and that was really lovely that sort of in the community we as casting directors have come up with sort of guidelines like if you're represented by X amount of people in the cast we will share credit and then it it's like the individual negotiation with the producing entity mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting 
right, so just a couple of questions because I know Paul, you have to teach a class tonight, and Ron, you have another show tonight. How do you keep, like, with a long-running show like this, something fresh? Because I know is your passion, is is it lighting design? Hmm. Do you get leaves of absence, or do you, like, do how you, do you... Yeah, I'm... Uh, oh, excuse me, for me, not yeah. for the show itself. For you. Yeah. 15 like, years, the same show yeah, is a long time. a long time. The passion is theater. Okay. And storytelling, I know that's cliche, but, like... Uh, telling stories live and so I love it in all ways I love I love I'm happiest when I feel I'm contributing the most right so I feel as a designer that I'm usually contributing the most mm-hmm. more than differently than as a stage manager so I love the lighting but I there's a reason why I quit being a freelance lighting designer and focused on being a stage manager like, okay I didn't love the life and I didn't love that I couldn't that I couldn't choose my projects like for me it's a lot easier to be a stage manager, the work itself is fulfilling and I feel honorable, like keeping the integrity of other people's work intact, mm. whether or not you agree with their choices or not. And that mm. work for me is nice. As a designer, when you're just trying to book jobs in regional theater and they don't pay a lot and you, you have to get there at, you know, right when they go into the theater and focus the show, you know, you're drafting in the hotel room and trying to get the next job and then you leave after the first preview. You don't have the same investment. Also, some of the people you work with, maybe you don't love their choices, and you don't. And it's harder to be a part of that team, and then f- you have to work with and go along with that. Whereas as a stage manager, I was like, yeah, that's your choice. I protect it. It's my code, you know. So now I, I get to be choosier about the lighting than I do. You know, things may change. I may go back. You know, but right. the, I mean, after fifteen years. But yes, Disney's been incredibly generous. Like. I'll be in Miami at Florida Grand Opera doing a Rilletto in March. And they also have me light these concerts that they do all over the world. I was in Tokyo in February for Disney doing a, a symphony, uh, Disney Broadway hits concert, doing the lighting. So I've been super lucky. And so, yes, that's, they say what they say, uh, changes as good as a vacation. Sometimes. Yes. So definitely recharges the battery. It's, um, I love to be in production again. I like to. I love to be a lighting designer who cares about stage managers. Oh know? yeah! Like when I go into a building, I worry about how they call the show. I'm so grateful about how they organize a rehearsal. You know what I mean? I love to be that person who has that perspective. Yeah, I love it. I love both things. Would I like to light more? Maybe, but I, this job is so takes so much of me that I'm not sure I could do much more. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. So I haven't really put myself out there as a freelancer. One year I did eight projects lighting in one year and I found I didn't do either this job or those jobs as well as I would have liked mm. to like it didn't you know I wasn't able to do them to my own standard you yeah. know so I have to be careful with that and what I accept so anyway you know nothing's perfect but right. it's as close to like in my heart what I wanted to do was like move back to New York get off the road be in New York and get it book a job as a stage manager and be in town and then pick the lighting that I got to do and now I've done that for 15 years you know that's fantastic yeah so I'm so, I feel super lucky about that but yeah trying to find out what's next you know? yeah. yeah so Paul I know you're about to go teach a class and I know you like think you're not good at teaching I've been your reader twice <laughs> and you're great at it because I know a lot of casting directors do it is that something that you do in addition is it just because theater doesn't pay as well I mean why do you do the teaching stuff it's like sort of a nice sort of study thing you know in the fall I'm at Brooklyn College in the new school and then in the spring I teach this te- uh, for the Tepper semester that Syracuse University organizes and it's a in the city semester and it actually serves two purposes one like selfishly I sort of get to strengthen my teaching skills like I'm a better teacher now than I used to be a friend was just talking at the name game at Mark Fisher Fitness they were like 
something that blew your mind recently and it was like a parent someone's talking about a parenting podcast that was talking about instead of like congratulating your kid or saying great job to focus on asking how that felt mm. like because mm. because the accomplishment is more about like how how's the child feel in it and so I was like ooh because I'm definitely the teacher that the minute the student finishes I'm like good 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 <laughs> <laughs> and then sort of like work stuff and I'm like okay maybe it's not about immediately telling somebody they're good maybe it's checking in to see mm. how they feel and and that informs the learning experience um, and then you actually get to meet you know sudden young actors in a context that is a little less fraught and tense than an open call or you know like back to Mark Fisher Fitness because I'm there five days a week but um, wow. uh, <laughs> I, I walk by like Pearl Studios and Ripley Greer at like 6.45 in the morning and there are lines for the EPAs and like I know a lot of them are like non-union waiting to like sign up just with the chance to get seen and it's just like it's just mind-blowing you know talk about the statistics and the volume and, and the tenacity and I think that's a you know and I know what those monitors are like mm. behaviorally because I was back in the day equity had eligibility and I was an eligible performer and could go to those calls mm -hmm. and those monitors were not as um, nice to me when I was yeah. eligible. And then the minute I was a casting assistant, you know, <laughs> like they were super nice. And I'm like, I remember you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, I, I do love teaching. And I credit also James Caleri was my teacher and he now runs the graduate acting program at Columbia. And mm. I, when I'm in doubt, I'll sort of, we used to teach classes at the same time down the hall from each other. And if I was like stuck, I'd be like, let's go down to James's class and figure it out. You know, and so I I feel like I'm good at stealing from good people. I'm getting better at sort of paying attention and right. figuring it out. They're my guinea pigs. Yes. <laughs> so if you could give advice to like a young theater nerd geek that uh, doesn't want to be on stage but loves theater, what would you give the advice would you give them? I would give what my mentor gave me, which was all of the things that you're good at and develop all those things, whatever, you know, if it's drawing or painting or uh, building or uh, if you have a knack for whatever, and figure out, you know, uh, how those things can apply to a job in the theater. There's lots of jobs that do lots of different, if you're a caregiver, if you're a manager, you know, all those things, figure out a way that you can apply those to making a living in the theater. Like, it may not be the living you thought you were going to make, mm. but it's similar with the lighting. It's like, I'm not into lighting. I'm into theater. You know, mm, yeah. I happened to have a knack for lighting, and it was something that I could do to help be a part of it. You know, so yeah, if you're into theater, f you know, f find the things you're good at. There's something. There's somewhere in the building that they need you, or out of the building, you know, that they need that they need that to apply to this business because it's you know there's 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 a place for everybody and all the different kinds of skills you have. Find those skills and figure out how they apply and get yourself involved. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, if I had a do-over, I like, I've always been curious, but I was also, like, really afraid. And so it's taken me, like, until a lot later in life to sort of lean into exploring curiosity. And I think if you're young and you like the world and you show up and you tell people you're interested and you're, you're not rigid in terms of, like, what it is that you might want to do, like, you know, yeah. when, you're, when you're 20, a three-month gig seems like an eternity, but it's really a short window time so if you want to be a dresser for three months or if you want to be a house manager or a company management assistant or intern you know just any sort of just explore it all with curiosity and joy and, and I think stuff will work out generally alright speed round off the top of your head what's your favorite project you've ever worked in on Ron 
I lit an Angels in America both parts in, in Louisiana. Uh, that was incredibly uh, That's fulfilling. Awesome. Yeah. I'm frozen. I can't answer it. You worked on Frozen? No. <laughs> I loved it. I'm so proud. <laughs> uh, no, I, oh my God. I can't tell you. That's all right. How about uh, a song off the top of your head, a song that's going on in your life right now that's important to you? Taylor Swift, Beautiful Ghosts Work. from the movie Cats. Work. <laughs> the movie Cats? Uh, yeah, yeah. I love it and I make no apologies. Okay. I don't have a song that's going on in my life, so now you've got one, and I'm so it's one, one each, one each. <laughs> All right, well, that's going to be your song. Well, thank you guys very, very much. Okay. I so appreciate this. Thank you, Pat Bradley. Thank you, Pat. Follow me home if you dare to. I wouldn't know where to lead you. Should I take chances? Took chances on me So I watch from the dark Wait for my life to start With no beauty in my memory All that I wanted Was to be wanted Too young to wander London streets Alone and haunted Born into nothing you have something Something to cling to Visions of dazzling rooms I'll never get let into And the memories were lost long ago But at least you have beautiful ghosts
something to cling to. I never knew I'd love this world they've let me into, and the memories were lost long ago. So I'll dance with these. Memories were lost long ago, so I'll dance with these beautiful.